Do you want to hear about great work happening in schools around the world? Just Schools are life-giving places that address feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student. Dr. John Eckert digs deep into the current educational landscape with research, experience, and a good dose of humor and humility. Join us in the desire to do justice, love kindness, and walk with confident humility. Get inspired with stories of improvement in the profession that makes all others possible. Welcome back to Just Schools. Today, I'm excited for you to hear from one of my favorite math teachers in Illinois. She just uh, completed our program at Baylor, and she is super honest and refreshing in the way she talks about coaching and about students and mathematics on a really complicated topic, which is cheating. It's difficult to find good research out there on cheating and how prevalent it is. But if you talk to any educator, they will tell you that cheating post-COVID has become rampant as students seem to be becoming increasingly unsure of what is actually cheating, what is taking someone else's work for your own, and when does that cross a threshold into something that's a problem. And so, this Conversation may raise more questions and answers, but it's definitely something that we need to address. And we just addressed briefly in the book, just teaching feedback, engagement, and well-being. So hopefully this conversation is a nice addition to that. Our guest today is Alyssa Carl. She just completed her master's in school leadership this past December. And when she was in the program, she has a great sense of humor about seeing the world and the world of students. She shared a story about cheating that was one of the most egregious examples of what I'd call shared cheating between parent and student that I had heard. And so she shows up in the book, Just Teaching Feedback Engagement for Wellbeing for this story. So we're going to have her start telling us that story, and then we're going to dig a little deeper with her. So Alyssa, it's great to have you today. Could you share a little bit about shared cheating in your classroom? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, so this happened, this occurred during COVID. It was my second year teaching and we were doing like everyone, some students in the room, some students at home. And I had a student at home who kind of the whole year we had had difficulty like getting in contact with or having face-to-face meetings. And um, mom seemed to be very hands-on in the whole situation. So we had gone back and forth with her in emails and she wanted to be present if we had done things. And so we knew that she was super involved and um, the learning that he was doing. Um, but it wasn't until we didn't realize how involved she was until later that semester, we had given a test and we had kind of seen some kids giving answers that didn't match work or things. So for this test, we had required that they submitted their actual work that they were doing. And that way we can check and kind of see uh, just due to the nature of the math, it, it required that that would be fitting. Um, and so we sent the test to the student for him to complete. We get it back. We grade it. And he uh, did not receive a great score. I want to say it was like a B or a C overall. And so immediately when we put his grade in, we got a response from um, the mom who was kind of irate. And she said, how did I get this grade? I can't believe that I I wouldn't you know, do better on this. And I even asked a mathematician for some help and I received the help. And how are you telling me that this isn't a perfect score? And so obviously my co-teacher and I, that raised a lot of red flags for us because um, we were like, I don't remember assigning it to you. Uh, I thought it was to your student. And so she actually quickly shot back an email and said, oh, sorry, that was my son. He was on my computer. And we were like, this just is not adding up. So we had been in, in conversation with like, okay, what does this look like? A, you can't 
ask for a mathematician's help, like on your son's <laughs> test. Um, B, you can't really even help him on the test and see like, what are, where are we going with this? Like, what's, what's the plan? So we're kind of having conversation with our colleagues and talking about um, just what does this look like? And one of them is like, oh, wait a second. I am friends with his mom on um, Facebook actually. And so she um, was like, I think I saw something. So she pulls up her Facebook and it's public for the whole world to see. And she had posted um, screenshots of all the questions on our test and said um, something to the effect of, you know, my son's taking this test, looking for some help. We're not sure what to do, you know, with some emojis or something. And so then in the comments, um, some man who supposedly is a mathematician um, had done his best effort to work through the problems and what he typed in the comments, like word for word was what they had put on the paper. So it became very evident to us. Um, and so we confronted her about it and we never received a response in regard to that. And the post was taken down off of Facebook, but there was still a lot of like question marks. She never admitted that she did something that she felt like was wrong. And our approach to her was just like, you're doing a huge disservice to your child um, by kind of acting in this way. And he had had an IEP and one of his IEP goals is like helping him prepare for after school. Right. So just the whole nature of the beast was, yeah, really kind of horrifying to a deeper issue, kind of like you said, but left us with a lot of question marks, but also a really good story. It's good to tell. Right. That is remarkable. And it, it does beg the question if we need chat GBT for mathematics so that she could just it in yes, there, right. cir the circumvent Facebook and, and the mathematician who it sounded like didn't actually do very well on the test. So yeah, that's the question on that status. True, so, I agree. <laughs> but so that really leads to the next question, though, is how do you define cheating? Because clearly the mother somehow is not defining that as cheating, which I, I cannot imagine a world in which we wouldn't see that as cheating. But there are these it feels like there's an increasingly large section of gray as at least students look at cheating. And I think even some educators look at cheating. I had one administrator tell me, well, at least during COVID kids learned how to, we know they at least learned how to collaborate. And <laughs> when I was referring to the amount of cheating that went on in the time that we were doing virtual learning, and that's not what I would call collaboration when you're taking one student's work and claiming it is your own or however the work was being done or taking work from the internet that's not yours and claiming it is your own. So certainly I define that as cheating, but how would you define cheating? Let's start there and then I've got a follow up. Yeah, this is such a good conversation because I'm having this all the time with students in my classroom because it it did turn so... Um, there was a, like a sharp turn, I feel like during COVID of exactly what you just said. Um, and cheating, I feel like I'm, I'm redefining. I, I definitely consider what happened in my classroom to be cheating. Um, and anytime I feel like students are, um, taking information from their peers that's not their original thought or the internet or their mom or whoever in their life, I feel like the mathematician. Uh, yeah. The mathematicians <laughs> around them. Yes. Whoever it is and not adding any useful thought of their own, I feel like I would consider um, cheating. And uh, really quickly, like a, a side story of this that I think goes perfectly. I just had a conversation. I coach basketball. And so my basketball girls are often in my room and working. And the other day they were working in my classroom and I was overhearing their conversation. And I realized they had pictures of their tests. They're like all honor students. And so they had pictures of their tests and they're working through it. And they're they were like, it looked like working really well. Like they were talking to each other and saying like, what do we do? How do we do this? You know, whatever. 
And I was like, you guys are cheating. Like what's going on here? And they were like, no, this person had all the wrong answers. So like, we're just, we're just figuring out how to solve it. We just have the questions ahead of time. This is not cheating. And I, there was a genuine disconnect between me and them with, I was like, no, that is cheating. Like if you have the questions ahead of time, this is not okay. And so we ended up taking it to their teachers and it, it was a bigger conversation, but that's when I started to realize, like, I do think that there is some actual genuine misunderstanding of like kids, not even knowing where the line is. Sometimes I do think sometimes they know and, and just take the path of least resistance. But I also think that there's sometimes that they're like, well, it's not like we have the answers. We're working out the answers ourselves. And so it's just been interesting for me to start thinking about um, the nature of the work we're giving. And if it can all just be Googled, maybe what's the point of that, right? And and how to elicit like real thinking from students um, in a way that's meaningful and measurable also. Right. And this this idea of you don't need to learn anything that you can Google is really, really challenging now, especially as you have chat GPT out there. There are so many things that you can get from a machine, but you can't learn things without learning things. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's this idea of, yeah, and, and that you're, that's a good example of students not seeing that as cheating because it's now their collective work that they're going to then go submit on a test that's supposed to be in a finite period of time that's testing their knowledge, which now at best is getting the collective knowledge of people prior to actually going in the test. The fact that they don't see that as cheating. And I've seen this increasing in honor students. It's not just students that are struggling. It's students that want to make sure they get every point possible. So they might be able to get a 90% on their own, but they want to make sure they get the 100% and they're going to use whatever they see as an additional quote unquote resource, which would be the test questions early and their peers working through the problems, that that's somehow just using resources. And what it's doing, in my mind, is compromising any actual learning that's going Mm -hmm. on because you don't know what an individual knows. You also don't know what they could do on their own in the test environment that was set up. So, as best you can say, and I think this is a really hard question, how do your students or how would those students that you talk to there, how would they define cheating? If that isn't cheating, what would they say cheating is? Yeah, I feel like what I learned from that conversation with them is cheating is memorizing the answers and regurgitating those same answers onto a paper with no additional input of your own. So the fact that they didn't know the answers and just knew the questions, right, is was not cheating to them in their minds, which is an interesting thought process there. So it's a very narrow, if you get the answers, memorize them, you don't do anything. You just mindlessly regurgitate them. That's cheating, which we would agree that is that is cheating. But that's a very narrow definition of cheating. Right. It leaves a, a lot of gray area that I really do wonder if it's actually gray. But but it may be. And if it is, that's a different issue than students just rationalizing what they know is wrong. If they've actually gotten to the point where they believe what they're doing is okay, which it sounds like they were doing it right in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. They're, they're arguing with you that it isn't. That sounds like they legitimately don't think it's cheating. They haven't rational or or maybe they've rationalized it so far, so many steps back that they now have convinced themselves that it's fine. Is that really what you think has happened with especially middle school and high school students? I see this. And then it's bleeding now into college as well. Is that really what they've done? They've just rationalized it for so long and coming out of COVID, it just feels like collaboration and not cheating. Or do you think they're, they really know it's cheating, but they're just 
collaborating anyway? Yeah, I I really do feel like it's almost a combination of both of those. Like the more that I'm okay. having conversations with students, some of it I think they're doing out of necessity because especially in math, there's so many skills that they were in COVID for that they did that, that now they're at a place where they don't maybe feel like they even have a choice. Like, so it's rationalized in the sense of like, oh, I never learned this other part anyway. So this is my only way out. Um, and then I think some of it is if we're working together on this, like it, it, yeah, we don't have the answers. We're just, we're working hard, you know, through these questions. I think that some of them are, are genuinely confused that, that, that is cheating, but I think a lot of it is necessity or just, they're so used to having everything available. Like you don't have to think for very long about anything before you can just default to, you know, looking something up or asking someone about something. So I think that just that skill of thinking um, deeply about something is something that's lost on them. And so reteaching that, I feel like, is is a lot of the goal in my mind anyways. Uh, so good. And I think the cognitive endurance that we're losing, whether it comes to reading deep texts or working math problems, it's not about actually getting the right answer in the, the way you're wiring your brain. It's being able to think deeply and work through a problem with resistance that you then overcome that you get then that dopamine released. It's like, Oh yeah, I can do this. And so I, I keep going. And so if students have not had that for a couple of years, because a, they didn't know what they were doing, then B, they just got answers any way they could. Cause everything was open note, open resource. No one was checking. It was kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod. Like I'm assigning you this work. However, it comes in is fine, which I feel like teachers have kind of had that tacit agreement in some mm -hmm. places, which is then hard to walk back that it, it is this, what, how would teachers define cheating? Is it just collaboration or using resources? Or is it just, if you can Google it, you shouldn't learn it. I feel like you also have an additional deficit that you're working with because I've heard this from students. Well, I'm never going to use this math anyway. <laughs> so it's okay if I cheat on it because I'm not going to need this in real life. Have you gotten any of that pushback at all? Or were they not willing to say that to you as the math teacher? In the specific conversation I was talking about earlier, they did not say that, but that conversation is is a daily struggle. And um, I obviously try to combat it sometimes when they say like, oh, when will I use this? And I reply to them like, your brain? I hope like you use your brain forever. Right. Like, I'm, my hope right. is that you're not just um, learning skills, but you're learning like character things. And so really a lot of this has um, not just the cheating, but like just the nature of looking things up and what is relevant and what do they need to know. Um, has led me a lot to focus on like character-based strengths within my classroom. And um, my school's actually, we, with my capstone, we started studying um, math endurance. So like, how can we increase this, which was what you were just talking about in our students. And it is, it is really like a, a difficult skill for them to sit in something that they don't understand, especially if they are missing maybe some of these prerequisite skills. So we're focusing a lot on um, teaching them to come up with something, right? Like there's no bad answer except for no answer, right? And then just kind of having most of the academic discussion within the classroom not be right and wrong answers, but on thought processes. And I think that that helps a lot when you're having them constantly justify why they're doing something. Um, they can see more of a connection to their real life rather than just giving them 15 problems to solve in a set amount of time or something. 
So that helps. I love the openness of that. But the thing I also appreciate about math is you do work toward truth. Two plus two ultimately is four. There is something that that's solid. And I think in a postmodern world where we say, well, any any position is just my position and my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. So in the end, we're just advocating for positions. So therefore cheating, eh, what does it really matter? Because in the end, I'm just backing my position. I feel like math is one of those places where it's like, there are multiple ways to get to answers, but there are answers. And mm-hmm. that's, that's what we're pursuing together. So I guess the question I have for you is, is cheating symptomatic of something bigger going on in Gen Z or in society at large, where we, we've shifted somehow? And I don't know if it's a moral shift or a pragmatic shift or a, we're not willing to read anything deeply. We don't want to stay on a problem long enough. Or is it a combination of all those things? Do you see cheating as being just kind of the tip of the iceberg where there's a lot of deeper, there are a lot of deeper societal issues underneath. And again, we're just, I never give any time for our guests (laughs) to prep these questions. And so this is a big question, but as you hear that, and just off the top of your head, do you see anything below the surface of cheating that's leading to that? Yeah, again, I don't feel like I have yeah some profound answer, but I do. I agree. I think that this is a symptom of something bigger. And I think a lot of um, it just comes from what is the meaning of their education, right? A lot of kids will say that they don't feel like high school is useful. And they've kind of been fed this narrative of you're not learning real world skills here. Um, you're le- learning stuff that you're never going to use again. And I think that that feeds them to saying, you know, what this is not where I want to spend my time. I want to just get the information and they can, they can get the information from somewhere um, in most of their classes, just because of um, the resources that they have at their fingertips. So I think for sure it comes from definitely a deeper society thing. I don't think that it cheating is, I mean, it's not new, but I do think it's a lot more prevalent um, in students today. And um, I would be curious looking at how this evolves. Like I think in my classroom all the time, I'm like, I wonder what this is going to look like in 10 years. Like, are we still seeing ramifications from COVID or is it kind of this shift in education where we kind of need to reevaluate what we are teaching kids um, and the narrative through which we're teaching them what we're teaching them? Because they do have different values. They don't think that you know everything and they have everything to learn from you, right? So they know a lot of things and they know they can find anything they want to know. Um, So just even the power dynamic, right, between educators and students is changing. So I think that would lead me to say that there is this bigger thing that's there. It's not, it's not just cheating. And it's not just my school. It's not just the US, right? It's kind of this bigger society thing that's happening. Yeah, I think you're picking up on a lot of major themes that are there that we could spend a while unpacking. But I would just reiterate the, the idea that Education is about helping kids become who they were created to be. Mm-hmm. And if they aren't developing thinking skills and the ability to synthesize and assimilate knowledge and create new ideas because they haven't learned how to think, that's going to be a problem. And that's one of the main things math does. And so if we don't help students see that and see the beauty in that, and it's not about you simply downloading information from your brain to theirs. And it's not about them simply being able to find a resource that gives them the answer, but it's actually being able to go through the cognitive endurance that builds their ability to think deeply about math, but then about other issues. 
we're going to have big problems. And I just heard, I was listening to somebody on another podcast yesterday talking about the deep reading and what's getting published now is increasingly less, even in peer reviewed journal articles, they're getting shorter and get to the point and don't give all the context because we don't want to spend the time reading. And so what that becomes is, is this mutually reinforcing loop of decreasing levels of complexity because that's what we want to read. And so then we're less likely to be able to read that moving forward. And so I still want to help support educators who are trying to get kids to think deeply about social issues and historical issues and mathematical issues and scientific issues. Because as a person who believes kids are made in the image of their creator, that helps us understand how the world is ordered, but it also helps us be better caretakers of that world. And so the question I have for you is how do we help students grow in ways that honor the good work that they do that is actually theirs? So on from a positive framing, how do we help them start to do that so that they don't fall back into this uh, cheating or taking others' work as their own? Yeah. As you were talking, I, I was just thinking too, like, this is the part of my job that is makes it super fun. Like I feel like when I when I try to do things that aren't super meaningful and just give them a task and have them write down some answers, like it's really frustrating. But when you work to have them have these really deep, meaningful conversations where they're um, debating, it's it just like brings energy. It brings energy to them, and I think it brings energy um, to me as well. And it makes it fun. Like it it really feels more enjoyable when you are doing something that is meaningful to both them and you, which is not profound there, right? Like that makes sense um, in doing that. And and I think that that is kind of how we have to get back to do it is help them realize, like you said earlier, the dopamine that you get from working hard through something and seeing the result that you want, that doesn't go away. That doesn't change. They just don't get to experience that very much. And so giving them things that are meeting them where they're at, but also pushing them to go a little bit deeper um, to challenge each other in a way that's safe for them and the way that also pushes them to grow and and really just stop giving tasks that don't do that because it is. It, I mean, at some point, sometimes you have to um, you know, fix processes or things like that. But if I've found that when I open things with something deeper that kids can um, think through and discuss and I can give them kind of tools to get there, uh, then the actual learning of the material goes a lot better because they have that investment in it ahead of time. And so I think that that is a tool that can be used in all course or content areas, right? Not just math. I think it lends itself everywhere, but giving them a purpose behind it and kind of creating a space where they feel like they can take um, academic and intellectual risks is huge. Yeah, it, it goes back to the point, teaching is not about us. It's about them. Teaching gets a lot more interesting when we're focused on our students. That's why I love teaching our MA program, because all the work you're doing is based on the work you're doing with your students. So those courses are interesting, not because of me or the content I'm bringing, but it's what you're bringing to making meaning of that material. One last thing I'll say before I get us to our lightning round is there's very little research out there on the prevalence of cheating. It's a very hard thing to capture. So I think these kinds of conversations are important for teasing it out. Educators know it's happening. They mm. don't always know what to do about it. 
whether technically or just morally, how do we help kids understand this is not what's in their best interest? And here are safeguards that we can put on it. Because I also hear students say things like, well, the teacher left those answers out there for me or the test wasn't, you don't have six versions of the test, then you're basically giving me permission to cheat. And it's like, oh, okay, there's a technical issue there, but then there's a much deeper issue there about Mm -hmm. Cheat, I, it's not cheating if the teacher lets me get away with it. It's like, well, that's really problematic as a society. And so I think we need to keep having these conversations where we can capture research we do and where we can point to what you said about giving kids purpose and meaning. That's not something that you can cheat on because it's deeply a part of who you are and you're seeing their thinking. That That's powerful. So for the lightning round, I want to start with this. What's the worst advice that you've ever gotten as an educator? So again, I know you haven't thought about this, but take it, take a few seconds. Worst advice you've ever received? I think the worst advice I ever received was before I actually started teaching when people told me that the like firmer you are, the less students know about you, the better you will do. Um, And that is just not my personality whatsoever. And so I feel like I thankfully had good people in my life that um, kind of counter countered that for me quickly. And I was able to adjust and say that, but that was something I heard so much in undergrad. And I was like, this doesn't even feel like a good idea, but I guess if that's what everyone's saying, and (laughs) it's not, it's not a good idea. It's good. On the flip side, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? I don't know if I can say the best, but I would say great advice that I've gotten um, is to never be working harder than your students are. And not in a sense of like, (laughs) if they're cheating, you should be doing less, but in a sense of (laughs) they should be more academically engaged in the course than you are. And when I first started, that was not true of my classroom at all. And I was leaving sweating and they were leaving just like, oh, that's a good 50 minutes of my time. Yeah. So that has really shifted a lot of things for me, like who's yeah. doing the work and who's doing the learning. Yeah. Robin Jackson's book titled that is so good. Never work harder than your students. Great title mm-hmm. and, and good, good principle there. Worst excuse a student has ever given you for not completing work. Oh, these are hard questions. The worst excuse they've ever given me. There's just so many coming into my head. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of one that I I don't think was uh, very legitimate, but um, I mean, they'll say anything. They'll say that they <laughs> like, oh, okay, here's one like um, March Madness is on, right? And they're like, oh, well, I, I had to see if my team was going to win or not. And I'm like, uh, I don't, I just like, don't even understand how that you tried to come up with that as a good excuse. Yeah. So anything that is like just personal preference, like, Oh, I had these new pair of shoes were coming out and I had to make sure I was online to buy them. It's like, okay, I I guess if that's where your priorities are, but I don't know how you thought I would be okay with that. (laughs) I I love March madness, but I cannot imagine a student using that as an excuse. That's uh, it speaks to how free kids are to, they don't even have to come up with a, even a decent excuse. The dog ate my homework or like the legitimate things that were out of their control. It's like, no, I just prefer to watch yeah, my team. Or get right. Excuses. I wish they were trying yeah. to come up with excuses. Right. It seems <laughs> right. like they're just right. like, well, here's actually the fact I didn't want to. So <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But right. so maybe a, a different side of that coin for this question. What's the best excuse you've ever gotten? Like, yeah. Okay. That really seemed legitimate. Whether it was or not, you're like, Oh, that was, I, I accept that. Um, I recently, this one was like a little off the wall, but I had a, uh, 
I could never prove if it was valid or not, but she had said this, this big long story about um, her friend going missing. And then they went to look for her friend at midnight. And then once they found the friend that it was just like a, if you give a mouse a cookie type of story, like there was like, and then this, and then this. And I was like, at this point, like, if this is not true, I appreciate how much effort the story has evolved. into. (laughs) And so I, I think it had maybe some validity, but it was a, I was like, now that is an excuse. Like that's something I will take for sure. (laughs) So (laughs) at least I appreciate uh, creativity in your answer. That's it. There you go. The most challenging aspect of your work. Um, For me, the most challenging aspect is the narrative that's like currently going on in education, that it's something that you should avoid or get out of and still trying to find a way to say to people like, no, this is, I enjoy this. This is what I feel like I'm meant to do. And, and I just, the most challenging thing is how often I run into that conversation and I have to um, confront someone with what I feel like is the truth for me, which is that this is meaningful and this is, has good and it is enjoyable and I see value in it. And so many people just have a different conversation. So, I mean, that's why I appreciate the work that you do. And I think that's why the master's program has given me a lot of longevity, I think, in for future longevity in this career, because I know that there are people all over the world that think the same as me and that are willing to put in the work. But it is super discouraging that that's just not the narrative of our country as a whole. So that's hard. Yeah. No, I hear that over and over again. That's why our work's so important, because that's where the hope is. So that's the last question. What's the most hopeful aspect of your work? The most hopeful aspect is that you are never going to stop working with people who have multiple minds. Like that's the beauty of science is that the the age group, the children that are sitting in our seats want to be known and loved. And if you give them that, they're willing to um, adapt and to see things in a new way. And just like I said earlier, like having those conversations, every time I leave my students having a deep conversation, I'm like, there is hope like this, this is awesome. And this is why we do this. And um, kids haven't changed, even though the environments that they live in maybe look different or their um, society looks different or whatever, their backgrounds look different. Like them as human beings um, at their core still want someone who knows them and loves them. And so being able to be that person um, and knowing that that's never going to change is is really hopeful in the work that we do. I love that. And the fact that we're doing a podcast together seems appropriate because it was a podcast that made you aware of Waco. So becoming something, a slightly larger audience than (laughs) ours, uh, that you listened to got you down as a public school uh, math teacher in Illinois to Waco, Texas. So uh, grateful to have you on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, um, yeah, we have to shout out obviously how I got here, but I'm waiting right. for your feature on their podcast. Like you gave him a feature <laughs> right. on yours. It seems like it's only fair. So, so, so well said, Alyssa. We'll make sure we make sure JP hears that. All right. Have a great day. Awesome. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Alyssa Carl. She's a remarkable educator and coach because of the honesty that she shares with her students, the authenticity that she brings, and the deep commitment to relationship with students. You could hear her still enjoying the teaching profession, even at a time when 
teaching is being denigrated and being seen as a task that's less than. I'm optimistic about the future of the profession because of leaders like Alyssa, because of the work she's doing every day as she contends for truth, as she draws students into purposeful learning. And she does it in a way that's relational, where she can have hard conversations with her basketball team that's in her room and they're cheating and don't even seem to realize that they're cheating and she can have that conversation with them. So I'm optimistic about the work going on in the profession that makes all of this possible. And I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Baylor Center for School Leadership. Join us for our Just Schools Academy this June, where we will use Dr. Eckert's book, Just Teaching, to do better work together. Thank you.